Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of June 18th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. In the past couple of weeks, I've been taking a look at Nero. All right, let's get this out of the way right at the beginning. Emperor Nero is said to have fiddled while Rome burned. I suppose that he probably got a bum rap. First of all, I'm fairly certain that violins had not yet been invented And even if they had been invented, they weren't called fiddles until sometime in the 1800s. Be that as it may, there seems to be some law that requires that any discussion of Nero's ROM burning tools begin with a discussion of good old Emperor Nero. So there, I've got that out of the way, and we can get on with the actual discussion of the product itself. Nero's latest version of the program, Nero 7 Ultra, is a pretty impressive piece of work. And Nero is a program that's included with a lot of hardware. You buy a CD-ROM burner or a DVD burner, uh, there's a fairly good chance you'll get one of the limited light versions or perhaps an older version of Nero. And perhaps as a result of that, it has not received the respect that it should have. That should change with this version. In fact, I liked Nero right from the beginning. One of the things that I noticed is that they still include a little application called NCD. Now, what NCD is, is a packet writer. It's something that allows you to make a CD or a DVD look like a very large floppy disk drive. Now, that can be handy, but given the cost of CDs and even the rewritable CDs these days or even the cost of DVDs at well under a dollar, using one of these packet writing programs isn't something that a lot of people might want to do anymore. And in fact, these kinds of programs can cause problems for the users. Several times I have been at programs such as Corel World or PowerPoint Live, programs uh, that encourage the patrons to bring with them work that the presenters will review. And I've seen people bring their work on one of these CDs or DVDs that has been written with an NCD or some other company's program that works the same way. They pop the CD into a machine and nobody can read it. The reason nobody can read it is when you write the CD with this software, to be able to use it again, you have to have the same software installed. So if you know you're going to be using the CD in question only on your machine, and this is an important feature for you, by all means, go ahead and install NCD. But what Nero does by default, and I think this is a very wise move on their part, they don't install it by default. Thank you, Nero. I appreciate that. Once you get beyond the installation, you've got a program that does a lot of things. And if you take a look at the website, www.techbiter.com, you'll see that I have listed there as a sidebar the new features in Nero 7 Pro Ultra. Just the new features as a sidebar. And it, it's a very long sidebar. There are new features in burning and copying. There are new features in audio. There are new features in photo and video. There are new features for DVD. There are new features for backup. There are new features for playing music and videos and for sharing them. Some of them are fairly trivial, like adding a metallic skin. Okay, so it looks prettier. But there are a lot of very nice, new, useful features. And perhaps one of the nicest features of Nero this time around 
is the interface. They have done a masterful job of putting together an interface that allows you to be able to do what you want to do without necessarily knowing, having to know how to do what you want to do. Let's face it, if you're burning a CD or a DVD, this is a fairly complicated process. And there are a lot of things that you may need to choose. What Nero does, and actually what most of the other competing programs do to some extent, although I think Nero perhaps does it better than anybody else at this point, is they create a a friendly interface that gives you a list of CD features, a list of DVD features, and then a list of things that you might want to do, like working with photos and videos or copying a DVD or creating a, a data disk. Once you select that, then you have below there other options that further fine-tune what you want to do. So you work your way down through this menu until you work your way to the description of the job that you actually want to do. And from that point on, it's extremely simple. So this is, that's a nice way to do the interface. They've got a very good recode feature. This will allow you to duplicate a dual-layer DVD onto a single-layer DVD by compressing the video and the audio. And if you want to keep the original video fidelity, you can then just tell it to duplicate the DVD onto two single-layer DVDs. Now, important point here, Nero is very upfront about not wanting to be involved in piracy. So it will not copy any kind of copy-protected DVD, any commercial DVD uh, that you get. Uh, you can't make a backup copy of it unless you have a program like DVD 4.3 that will allow you to essentially strip off the copy protection, but that's a separate program, not sold by Nero, not involved in any way with Nero. And there, you know, there's kind of a fine line here. Obviously, you can't go to the library and bring home a DVD and make 43 copies of it and sell them to your friends. Definitely a problem there. However, if you buy a DVD, and I know from my experiences with the companies, once you've had that DVD for probably six months or so, if there's a problem with it, they're not going to replace it for you. You have to buy it again. So I do like to make a copy of my own DVDs just as a backup. And uh, unless you have uh, a program such as DVD 4.3 running in the background, that isn't going to work either. Nero, I would give, uh, actually I give Nero top rating. Nero gets five cats. I really can't think of anything much they could have done to make the collection of tools better than it is because it covers the waterfront. It covers CDs, it covers DVDs, it covers all kinds of rewritables. Whether you're doing music, whether you're doing video, whether you want to back up your computer, it has everything in there you're going to need. If you're currently using an earlier version of Nero, you're probably going to want to upgrade to this version. If you're using somebody else's CD and DVD burning software, this might be enough to get you to switch. Nero should get some real respect for this one. This seems like a good time to thank Apple for iTunes and iPods. I'm not a real big fan of opera. That's one form of music that I just have never been able to get my ears around. Uh, Likewise, some of the real twangy country music. And actually, if you stop and think about it, opera and country have a lot in common. The themes are very similar. Be that as it may, I do enjoy just about all kinds of music. And if you look on what I call the world's largest iPod, you might think I'm nuts. That would be very perceptive of you, but then we're all a little nuts when it comes to selecting music. I took a look at what's on my world's largest iPod, and I'll tell you why I call it that in a minute. The music ranged from Ray Conniff 
to the Dresden Dolls, 12 cellists of the Berlin Philharmonic, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, Gil Scott Heron, Frank Sinatra, Ivan Smirnov, Snowy White, Spanky and Our Gang, Johnny Cash, Spencer Davis Group, the Squirrel Nut Zippers, the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, Stan Freeberg, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and all sorts of variations of that group, Lee Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey, Joe Dunlop, the Dixie Chicks, and the Charlie Daniels Band. I love that as a segue. Tom Jones and Spike Jones, Janis Joplin's Quincy Jones, B.B. King... Henry Mancini, Herbie Mann, the Mannheim Steamroller, Bette Midler, Miles Davis. Well, it goes on and on and on and on and on. 63 genres. My world's largest iPod tells me I have, and about 1,200 artists. In all, it's probably about 15,000 selections. Now, I've had an iPod for maybe three years now. And originally, I carried about 5,000 tunes on it. Took those to the office every day, plugged the device into an amp that's in my office. I also do a little editing of audio at the office, so I've got an amplifier there. Plugged that in. But even with 5,000, sometimes I didn't have the music I wanted to listen to. Actually, this didn't happen all that often. I think it maybe happened once. But I got to thinking that I had a retired G3 Mac sitting at home. It's a slow Mac. The G3 was a 400 megahertz machine, had a 30 gigabyte hard drive, so it didn't have enough power or enough disk space to really be useful anymore. But I had an external hard drive housing sitting around. There was no hard drive in it. And that same week, I spotted an ad that mentioned a Seagate 100 gigabyte drive for 40 bucks after a rebate. Well, I bought the external hard drive, loaded my entire iTunes library there, took all of the pieces to the office and plugged them into the amplifier. So now I've got about 15,000 items to select from. I have a full backup of my iTunes directory from the house, just in case the disk crashes there. And that's not bad for a $40 investment. So now my iPod tends to be a little bit lonely. Big band, alternative, 60s rock, country, symphonic jazz, punk, rap, zydeco, bluegrass, ragtime, march, you name it, and if it's not opera. Actually, even if it is opera, I've got a few arias on there. Not that I listen to them, but they're on there. On the website, item three this week is all about finding podcasts on iTunes. It tells you how to find this podcast on iTunes, which you can do, along with a lot of other podcasts that are out there. But since you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need to know how to find it. <laughs> Mind like a steel trap. So, we'll just forget that part. Here's something I found this week. I bought another hard disk. I'm always buying hard disks. Found another real good deal for a hard disk. This time it was a 300 gigabyte drive. Serial ATA from Seagate for under $100. This seemed like a, a good way to upgrade my backup drive, the drive that l normally lives at the office and I bring home once a week to do a full backup. Since it was a serial ATA drive, I couldn't use a standard disk enclosure for it. I had to go out and find a serial ATA disk enclosure, and there aren't too many of those just yet. Most of them are still kind of pricey, up in the 40 50 and more range. I continued to look around, found a company that sold one for about $25. Uh, knew it would probably be made in China, and indeed that was the case. It came in. It was easy enough to figure out how to put together. I mean, what do you got to do? You open the case. You physically put the hard drive in the case. You connect the two cables, one for data, one for power. You put the case back together. You plug it in. You plug in the USB cable. You plug the USB cable into the computer. Bingo, it works. No big deal. So I didn't even read the instructions. But later, I, I happened to notice the instruction manual there. The manual is, uh, oh, about uh, three inches tall and uh, five inches wide, about the size of an index card. 
picked it up and uh, started leafing through it, uh, leafing through its eight pages. I mean, it's not a very complicated device, so there's not a there's no big deal here. This got me to thinking back to the days when a lot of us made fun of what we called Jinglish, the Japanese English that came with uh, products from Japan. Largely, items made in Japan come with reasonably well-written instructions these days. Probably a lot of them are written here in the U.S. Uh, because they have discovered that a Japanese person who is speaking English as a second language sometimes won't pick the right words. Well, the Chinese are now doing it. Reading this little manual was amusing. For example, normally when they wanted the word you, as in you should do this, they used just a lowercase u, just the letter u. And we do that with I, except it's uppercase. But they had a lowercase u, except at the beginning of a sentence. If you happened to be at the beginning of a sentence, then they'd spell it out. But most of the punctuation was a little odd. They typically put a space before the punctuation and no space after it. So you'd get something like, U space apostrophe D better connect the high-speed device to the high-speed USB 2.0 port, space period, no uppercase when, connect to a non-high-speed USB port, space, space, comma, there, an alert message appeared on the taskbar telling you that connected it to non-high-speed USB port, though you can continue to practice, it will be run at a lower speed. Whopping the product properly, you must click the safely remove hardware icon on the right of the taskbar if you want to stop the product. And then there is a direction telling that the USB mass storage device can now be safely removed. I've got some letters and removed. Then you can whop the USB cable from the USB port. And then appeared a direction telling that the USB mass storage device can now be safely removed. Then you can whop the USB cable from the USB port. No, I'm not repeating things. They are. Well, the book went on like that. Now, interestingly enough, this particular Seagate hard drive was also made in China. However, Seagate provided a manual, and this is a nice manual, by the way, again, somewhat unneeded since hard drives are so simple these days. The manual from Seagate was a little easier to read. Welcome to Serial ATA. Seagate Serial ATA SATA disk drives are designed for easy installation. Unlike other interfaces, you don't set jumpers, terminators, or anything else when you use a Serial ATA interface. There is a jumper block beside the signal connector, but that is for factory use only. Nothing funny there. Just good information. Moving on to nerdly news. Excel has a zero-day flaw that's causing a problem for some folks. If you happen to use Microsoft Excel 2003, the older Microsoft Excel 2000, also known as Microsoft Excel XP, or if you use Excel for the Mac, there is a new exploit. It causes what is being termed an unspecified vulnerability. These problems are described like this rather vaguely because the people who announce them want to let people know that there is a problem, but they don't want to explain to people who would exploit the bug how to take advantage of it. Although people already know how to take advantage of it, you notice they called it a zero-day flaw. Uh, Whenever you have a zero-day flaw, it means that the problem is discovered on the same day that it's being exploited, and that's exactly what happened here. Microsoft has, over the years, created a number of of ease-of-use features, and sometimes these features come back to haunt them. That's what's happened here. Microsoft Office documents can contain embedded objects, so a malicious Excel document could be embedded in a Word or a PowerPoint document. And what that means is that all 
office document types can be used as vectors to spread this infection. Microsoft is cautioning, as it always does and as it should in a case like this, that in order for the attack to be carried out, a user must first open a malicious Excel document. So be careful about opening unsolicited attachments from both known and unknown sources. That's been my advice all along. If you get an attachment from somebody you don't know, or you get an attachment from somebody you do know but you're not expecting it, or it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that this person would send you, ask some questions before you open it. Microsoft is working on a solution. There isn't one available yet, so caution is really your only defense. The monthly set of patches that Microsoft released earlier this week did have a fix for a similar flaw in Word, so perhaps the Excel flaw will be fixed next month. And there, Microsoft also has a safety center. And there's a link to that on the website, www.techbiter.com. Uh, there's a link to the Microsoft Safety Center, and there are some detection tools there uh, that you can use. How about a Microsoft iPod? Would that be a Micropod or a MyPod? Well, according to Reuters, Microsoft has music and video device to compete with Apple's iPod in the works. In fact, it's so much in the works that there are actually some prototypes out there that, that are being demonstrated to some of the insiders. And Microsoft is also working on a music service like Apple's iTunes. Most of Apple's rivals charge a monthly fee. Apple is uh, pretty much alone in the market in charging the 99 cents per download or per track. And Microsoft is planning to follow the Apple model. And before somebody who's a real big Mac fan says it, I'll say it again. Ironically, several months ago, somebody created a little movie that showed what the box would look like if Microsoft had designed the iPod box. The video is available on Google Video. There's a link to that on the website. Uh, it was a spoof, of course, but the resulting box looks very Microsoftian. I wonder if that's what their MPod, MyPod, or Micropod, whatever they decide to call it. Maybe they'll call it an XPod. I wonder if that's what their box will look like. Thanks for listening. This has been Technology Corner for the week of June 18th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R. And you can also send email from the site. See you next week.